So uh, this morning is May 20th. It is uh, 2012. Our message this morning is called No Victims. No Victims. Amen? Yeah, you should give an amen to that. No, no, that's, that's a weekend. You should give an amen. No Victims. Um, I'm going to read to you some scriptures to get kind of a concept out there. You can turn to them if you like, but in this one instance, I'm not going to give you time to get to everyone. So if you're fast like Dustin, then get there. If you're not, then trust me and check me later. Psalm 139, verses, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Fair enough to say that in the Jewish concept, in the canon of Scripture, God is everywhere. Nowhere you could go that He would not be. Jeremiah 23, 23 says it this way, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see Him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? We serve a God that has no such thing as a God-forsaken land. No such thing as God-forsaken people. In the midst of despair and in the height of ecstasy, He is there. Well, if it's not a God-forsaken land and it's not a God-forsaken people, that only leaves the church responsible. It very well may be a church-forsaken people and a church-forsaken land this morning. I say no. Can you join me in saying no? No. no? no. We cannot allow our brothers to be victimized by unseen forces while we have the knowledge of the truth. We cannot stand back and pretend to be victims ourselves when all the power in the universe has been placed at your disposal to be used at His discretion. Amen. You cannot do it. There was a Greek prophet that Paul quoted and he said it this way, For in Him we live and move and have our being. We are His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our being. This was a man who was a pagan prophet named Epimenendez. God is everywhere. Yet we tend to need to be reminded of his closeness. Because when somebody is everywhere, you don't necessarily feel them right here. It's that kind of diffusion that happens. If he's everywhere, is he here? Is he there? Well, the answer, of course, intellectually is yes. But sometimes we just need that kind of backyard behavior. Right, Cass? Did you uh, teach any of your kids to swim? I know because we went to the river and none of them drowned. Right? <laughs> when a child's learning to swim, you know, mama, mama. Now they know you're there, but they want to keep their eyes on you. When they're learning to ride a bike, right? You know, they'll even fall trying to find you. You need to talk to them. You need your hand right under their seat. They need to, to occasionally bump into you, right? This is that kind of precious proximity that the Lord has. Look at Exodus 33, verse 15, or rather listen to it. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Come on, the entirety of the defense of our ministry, all of our activities is based on one thing. What you did or did not feel in our worship service. Praise God, did you feel God's presence here? Yes. Then this is what distinguishes us from all the other people on the planet. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? 
What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. God promised to show Moses that he was with him. But of course he was with him anyway. God promised to give Moses some kind of sign, something that he could see, a kind of focal point, although he was with him anyway. Deuteronomy 31 had said it this way, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Two verses later, the Lord himself will go before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do you hear in the first floor of the building the older covenant, the older testament, a promise that Jesus restated to his Jewish apostles, his Jewish disciples? In John 14, verse 18, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Did the glorified Jesus come and spend the rest of their lives with them? How did he come to them? It was by way of his Holy Spirit. In Matthew 28, 20, he ends the Great Commission with, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Knowing that he is with you and seeing that he is with you are two different things. And yet somewhere in that merger is where trust comes in, isn't it? Knowing that something is true and beginning to act like it is true. It's actually the substance of things that you hope for, but who really understands what, what that means, right? It's become theological language that we all go, uh-huh. But really, did it get down in your soul? Because when it's got down in your soul, you will look at your circumstances and say, yes, my body is as good as dead. Yes, my wife is older. And yet, I will not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God because He's able to perform what He has promised. He is with me. Yeah. You'll be able to look at Hebrews 11.6 and not just know that without faith it's impossible to please God, but you'll acknowledge Him in your circumstance, knowing that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. How do you seek somebody that's everywhere? <laughs> you seek Him in your circumstances, Lord. I know you're working in this. How are you working in it? There's terrible division, Lord. There's terrible oppression. Lord, there's even slander. There's horrible things. How are you working in it? And he can smile and say, I'm big enough to work through that. I work through the murder of my own son. Come on now. God is big enough to work through your circumstances. What pleases him is when you have the trust in him that looks at slavery, that looks at bondage, that looks at devilish behavior and says, God can use this. So how could God use sin? Friend? If he can't use sin, what are you doing here? He's been doing it from the beginning. He's with us, but sometimes we need a focal point. The focal point for Israel comes from Numbers 7. You can turn to verse 89. Numbers is like the book of Luke. It has the longest chapters possible in it. Tell me when you're in Numbers 7, verse 89. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between two cherubim. Now watch this. Marco. 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 I found him. Where did he hear the voice of the Lord speaking? He heard him speaking from one spot on planet earth. One place on planet earth. He was everywhere and yet there was a focal point. A place that God's people knew. The name of the Lord resided. And it was above the Ark of the Covenant. It was above that thing which came to be synonymous 
with the presence and throne of God. In 1 Chronicles 28, it says it this way in the 18th verse. You don't have to turn there. And the weight of the refined gold for the altar of the incense was this. He also gave him the plan for the chariot. That is the cherubim of gold that spread their wings and shelter the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Friends, in Hebrew, that's a Merkava. In the Israeli army today, this is a tank. It, it means God's war chariot. And they envisioned that the God of the universe was enthroned on a chariot. Who saw this chariot? Well, Ezekiel saw it. Who else saw it? Well, John the Revelator saw it. Who else saw it? It's described throughout the Bible, having four living creatures under it, an expanse, 24 elders above it, seraphim there, angels beneath it, amazing, beautiful things. And when a Hebrew looked at the ark, he knew just beyond what he could see was this, the presence of God. The Bible says things about it like in any direction it moves, it's moving forward. Isn't that good news? God never has to repent. He never has to turn around. Wherever He goes is forward, friends. And what led the Israelites into battle? What led the Israelites through rivers? What led the Israelites wherever they went? The presence of God. So the ark symbolized the presence of God. There was no way around it. And the Israel of today believes it so much that when they go to war, they named their weapons of war. Merkava. <laughs> They're hoping that God is enthroned upon their soldiers. And if you've ever read about the Six Days War in Israel, it would hard, be hard to come to a different conclusion. Amen. Psalm 18 says it this way, verse 10, He mounted the cherubim and flew. <laughs> now that's almost a comical picture, right? You know, a foot on each living creature and he's flying. So in 1 Samuel 22, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 22, David says he mounted the cherubim and flew. Darkness was his canopy. It was like a surprise attack. And yet he seems to be describing the cross. He says, my foes were too strong for me, but your hand rescued me. And so I have pursued them. I have chased them down and beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. The Hebrew knew that not only was the ark symbolic of God's throne, it was his victorious presence. Wherever his presence was, victory was found. Can you say amen to that? Amen. The devil works so hard to keep us out of his presence. How many thoughts do you have on a Sunday morning before you get to church of why you should sleep late? Why you should probably find a church where you're guaranteed not to run into his presence. Why you should do anything that you can to keep out of the presence is because... The devil is a liar, and he wants you to be a victim, not a victor. Amen. Because in the presence of God is where your victory is found. Come on, church, say amen yeah. to that. Yeah. Amen. When we get to Psalm 99, the first verse, says, the, the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let all the earth shake. I think y'all got that. So let's move on to fire. Come on now, fire. 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 Come on, fire is one of those universally captivating things. I recently spent some time in Kenya, and friends, when the sun went down, that great big burning ball of gas in the sky, it was dark. And if you lit a tiny little kerosene lamp, you could see it for miles in every direction. When it's really, really dark, the fire of God is a good thing. The fire of God will keep you going. It will be a light to your path. 
This is why the apostles tell us to fan it in the flame. It's why the apostles speak about it as something to be nurtured. In the early days of settlement of this country, somebody's job was to be the fire tender. Because if it went out during certain months of the year, you might not get it started again. Come on, there's a message in that, friends. Yeah. Fan it in the flame. Watch it. Stoke it. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. But do not quench the Spirit's fire, Amen. the apostle said. Amen. In Exodus 3, we hear this kind of verse. We're going to get to a text where we all read together. We're going to get to a text where we get to go through it together. I just wanted to give you some imagery that helps you get where I'm already at. In Exodus 3, verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Exodus 13, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Exodus 19, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And there they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Exodus 24, 17, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire. Come on, fire is universally associated with two things. Two things that seem like opposites and yet go together perfectly. The victorious presence of the Lord and the almighty judgment of God. Fire is always both. The day of the Lord is a glorious day for those who are ready for Him. And it is a dreadful, gloomy day of despair for those who are not ready for Him. For He comes in fire, the Bible says. When John the Baptist announced Him, He said He would baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. fire. Come on now. So fire is universally associated. In Leviticus 9, we have Moses' tabernacle, the first structure where God's name dwelt. Come on now, I know. In every town, there's first, better than you, such and such church. And then there's another denomination with the same word first. Sometimes we even go so far as to say greater. <laughs> right? Like greater non-denominational church. Of course, that's not how that goes, is it? The first structure where God's presence ever dwelled was not in Lake Charles, Louisiana. It was not in Sugarland, Texas. It was on the sands of Israel, and it was Moses' tabernacle. And the way that he showed them that his presence was there is Leviticus 9.23 says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people shouted, when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. How did they know God was with them? He answered to them with fire from heaven. By the time we get to David's spot where he's going to build the temple in the midst of sin on Aruna's threshing floor during the midst of plagues and pestilence in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 25 it says so David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site David built an altar to Yahweh there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings he called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven and uh, on the altar it burned the offerings by the time we get to Solomon's temple, the third structure which represented God's presence. In 2 Chronicles 7 verse 1, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. It's an amazing thing. What does the fire always do? Consumes. It consumes. Because our God is a consuming fire. Don't think that you can stand in His presence and something fleshly about you 
glory. It won't work. He will do whatever it takes to drag it out of you. He will shove you into the narrow way that strips it from you. He will baptize you in the criticism of man until he's inoculated you from the praise of man. He will do whatever it takes. Because if you're going to carry his fire, it has to be all about him. That's, that's the goal of every Christian when he says, I am the light of the world. He's speaking about being that fire. He's talking about that visible presence of God that they were to follow. When he said that in John 8, he is standing in a place where there are giant menorahs that symbolize God's presence. When he said it in Matthew 5, he said, you are the light of the world. He was talking about a completely selfless group of people that would become known as Christians. Mm. They cared about one thing, displaying God's presence. They weren't so interested in getting rich. They weren't so interested in the blasphemy gospel. They weren't so interested in all of the reverence of man. They wanted one thing, to be the city on the hilltop that showed the nations God's fire. Come on, have you ever heard Jason Upton's song, Dying Star? The man got touched by God's fire. Who writes in a song that you look too much like your own enemy? Who writes something like that? Who says that you're competing with God in a song about yourself? The man got touched by God's fire. And what came out was selfless. It was beautiful. It was pure. And it feeds my very spirit just to hear it. You don't have to like his voice. You don't have to like that genre of music. I don't particularly like the genre of music that Keith Green sang, but he was touched by God's fire, and so it feeds my very spirit. Of course, he also sang sacrificial things. He also had a prophetic-type voice that was cutting to the core, first about himself and then about everyone else. Yeah, because when one life changes, it affects one family, and one family will take it to the nations of the world. Come on, man. The guy who wrote Love and War, the Russian who wrote it, Tolstoy, he said, everyone dreams of changing the world. No one starts with himself. We have a choice today. Do we want God's fire or do we want something artificial? You remember Aaron's sons got killed in God's presence for offering unauthorized fire? They mixed something of the world, something of their own imagination with God. They said, you know, this is good, but it would be better if I added to it. Friends, we need to get to a place where we want one thing desperately. One thing. The presence of the living God. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 6. We will be here for a moment. <clears throat> Tell me when you're there. 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 Gabriel, could I prevail upon you to grab me some water? Thank you. Hey, that's my son. I'm proud of him. He's a pretty good boy, isn't he? Now, don't lie to me, do you think? Is he good when I'm not around? Yes. He's not going to be one of those preacher's kids that's not good when daddy's not around. <laughs> not going to happen. My job before I pastor you is to pastor my own family. Did you know that? Yeah. The qualifications for me to be able to pastor you are how I'm doing with my own family. The gospel lays this out as clear as day. So I love that you attend church. I love that you read the word. I love all of those things. The measure of a man is your own household, not how you speak, not how you sing. Not how, whatever you are, that can all be a man's fire, but God's fire dwells with the man who takes the task God gave him seriously. Can you say amen? Amen. Let, let's be good daddies. Let's be good moms. Let's raise up children that have not learned in their own homes that this is a hypocritical joke. Let's raise up children that have seen dad and mom fail and seen dad and mom repent. 
They've seen dad and mom get filled with fresh fire from heaven, and they want with all of their life to have what dad and mom have working in their midst. This is what we need. Are you in 2 Samuel? Yes. I am not. <laughs> but I am now. Thank you, Gabe. In 2 Samuel 6, what does your title say? Dark Who is enthroned above the ark? How did God prove it? He had shown fire. God is enthroned there. In fact, Merkava literally could be translated chariot of fire. Right? That's an amazing thing. This means that both fire and the ark were associated with God's presence. Let's read a few verses. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men. Come on now. Chosen men. David did not just gather anybody. He gathered chosen men. And how did he choose them? <laughs> in 1 Samuel 22, he chose them because they had more problems than anyone else in Israel. They came to him when he was exiled. They came to him when he was in trouble. And they brought with him, brought to him all of their troubles. But see, there's a beautiful thing about spending time with somebody like King David who has a heart after God. He will take a leper and make him a priest. He will take somebody who is indebted, somebody who is discontented, somebody who is an outcast. I think the way Paul said it is not many of you were noble or wise by the standards of this world. He will take men such as us. In a little time with them, he'll raise up 30 mighty fighting men. And those 30 will raise up an army. And they will take it to the enemy. And everybody will know it wasn't because of the men, it was because of God's fire. They will know that. That's how they write things like the battle belonged to the Lord that day. Really, nobody saw the Lord out there swinging the sword, but they knew the only way they could swing the sword like that was with the Lord. Amen. Come on, we need to be a people defined by the presence of the Lord. These were chosen men, chosen because of their difficulty, chosen like the nation of Israel because they were small and weak. Come on, how, why do we want to strive to appear perfect and strong? Have you never read in Hebrews 11 where it says their weaknesses were turned to strength? Have you never read in 2 Corinthians where Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. But you ask somebody, how you, I'm, I'm okay. I'm strong. I'm tough. i got no problems. Well, Eric, how do you name this victim or, or no victim if you want us to talk about our problems? I want you to talk about your problem and name the solution. And in naming the solution, get victory over your problem. Faith is not somebody who says, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. That's a liar, friends. That's not faith. I don't care how many famous preachers that are trying to get your money tell you that. It is not true. Faith does not look at your circumstance and lie about it. Faith looks at your circumstances, acknowledges it, and says, Nevertheless, my God is big enough. Yes. The promise could have died, but God can resurrect it. The promise could be crushed, but God can put it back together. It acknowledges the fact that the promise is dead, and yet reasons that God is able to perform what He promised. This is what faith is. It's not that thing that you write in the memo section of your check to bring more checks to you. That's ridiculous nonsense, friends. It's fishing for funds. It is devilish meddling with the gospel. Amen. And doesn't matter how popular it is, it is not right. What is right is faith rises to meet the floodwaters that are all around you. Faith says, God called me to go across this river, and even though it's swollen, even though there's giants on the other side, even though there's walled cities, yet will I go across. Yeah. Faith says in a man like Caleb who has a different spirit, yeah. he says, I am 85 years old, 45 years older than last time, but you put a giant in front of me and I will hand you his head. Yeah. This is what faith says. Yeah. Was he stronger or weaker? 
Well, he claimed that he was just as strong, but let's be honest. Nobody I know except Fred is stronger at 80 than he was at 40. <laughs> what do we have happening? He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. In the telling of this story, we're supposed to associate the ark with the presence of God. By the time we get to the 13th verse, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed. The presence of God is always associated with great sacrifice. There is no way to have the presence of God in your life without circumcising your heart, without circumcising your ears, without cutting away that which doesn't belong because light, friends, exposes darkness even in you. And the closer you get to the light, the more areas you find are not like the light and need to be cut out of your life. We live in a society and we often adopt an attitude that says, I did for God back then, so I'm good now. God never accepts this. Never. What you see is a man like Samson who is put to sleep in the lap of a prostitute, once a mighty deliverer, now simply in chains with a great name. God never allows us to stop, to coast, to rest. Instead, you can be a rich young ruler with nine things right, and he will point to you the one thing that you must get rid of or you cannot follow him. You don't believe me? Read it in the Gospels. It's the 10th chapter of Mark. He says, first sell everything you have, then follow me. Most of us would have said nine out of ten things, pretty good. He got a solid B but not the king of glory. He says, you want to carry my light? There can be nothing left of you. There can be nothing left of you. And it was okay yesterday because you didn't know, but today I've exposed it. Do something about it now. It's not optional. It's, it's, it's not, well, let's form a committee and decide. It's not take a vote and see if everybody else sees it. When the Lord of glory reveals something to you, you're responsible to do it that moment, right then, without fail, Without debate, without deliberation, you run to accomplish the task. You know why? That's what it means when you call him Lord. Otherwise, he's your genie. He's your great negotiator. He's Santa Claus in the sky who delivers you promises at your request. If he's those things, friends, then you have a pagan God. But if he is your Lord, who when he reveals something, you must obey immediately, then he's also your Savior. Come on now. Like you, I may have tripped. I may have tripped on the way to go do what he told me. I might have got distracted like Pilgrim. Pilgrim on his way to the celestial city got sleepy in the enchanted land. Sometimes he got beat up by the giants of doubt and despair. Sometimes he sat when he should have run. Praise God when he faced Apollyon face to face. He said, everything you've said about me is true and more what you have failed to say. And yet the king of this country is good. He considered that he had no armor on his backside, so he had to press forward. And the Lord delivered the battle to him. Amen. There is nothing that you can't overcome by carrying the presence of God with you. Even in this chapter, I've skipped over the great difficulties of Uzzah. I've skipped over the great difficulties of men who died because they failed to do what God said the way he said. It's with great sacrifice that the presence of God is carried. Yeah. Verse 14. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced with, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark. How much of Israel? 
<laughs> Come on now. Now you can say, well, that's hyperbole if, if you're an English teacher. Right? And maybe it is hyperbole. Maybe every single Israelite wasn't there, but the picture is still being painted. There is a day in which all of Israel will rejoice as the presence of God is ushered in by their Messiah into a tent on the earth. The question is, what is the tent? Where is it? Why did the apostles say that they were rebuilding David's fallen tabernacle? Did they get a construction loan, Don? Did they go, did they go grab a contractor? It must be that they looked around and saw all of these bodies that look so much like temporary dwellings and said, as God fills them, it's like David bringing the ark into the tent. Come on now, how does it come? It comes with great sacrifice. It comes with great praise. It comes at great cost. It's free, and yet you have to give up your entire life just to obtain it, or you can't have it. Come on, Jesus, help us. Help us. What are you trying to hold on to this morning? What is it that prevents you from having all that you could have in the kingdom? Because you know what, friends? If you still have those things, you don't have the pearl. The kingdom of God is like a man who saw a pearl and went back and joyfully sold everything he had to get it. Brother Mike twisted that around in a beautiful way, maybe even the way it was originally intended. Jesus gave up everything to obtain your obedience that was the pearl. All they ever wanted was the obedience of the nations. I think maybe, rather than read you 2 Samuel 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, I could just tell you there's a beautiful shadow and type here. By the time we get to the 7th chapter, we see a verse like this. This is maybe verse 12. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. How long? Forever. This could never be Solomon because it is forever. Solomon simply foreshadowed something that was to come. It seems that there would be an age ushered in by a messianic king, somebody much like David. He would bring the presence of God into a temporary dwelling that all the nations could see it. He would have a descendant of his, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who would rule the nations forever. And how would you know? You would know it by the presence of God. It would show up in fire. It would show up in a focal point. Maybe even in an incarnation in a human being. By the time we get to the 8th chapter, we see what lies in our future ahead. We see in verse 1, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines, that ancient enemy of God. Those rivals of God. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines. And what's that word say? Subdued, subdued them. Who was given the task to subdue the earth? Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded. Come on, we are in his business. We're in his business. We're supposed to be subduing the enemies of God. We should be able to lay them down and every length of the sword put them to death. We should trample on scorpions and lions. We have power over all of the enemy, Luke 10 says. There's not a victim in this room because you have been given all power. What is it that we're looking for? Are we simply looking for the fight? No, you're looking for the day when you have defeated enough enemies that you can ask the question in 2 Samuel 9. 
In 2 Samuel 9, look at verse 3. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? What is your job? Well, Galatians 5, 6, 7, and 8. The 5th chapter, the 6th, 7th, and 8th verse teach us. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Why did God invest in you power to put down the enemies of God? Why did God tell you to strip everything out of your life that doesn't belong and fill you with His power? So that others might feel His love in your trust of Him. That's why. That's the point, friends. That's not a byproduct. That's not just something that goes along. That is the point. You read the rest of this chapter, you find out that the only one left he could show kindness to was crippled in both feet. You ever read the word and see yourself in it? It's interesting. When you look in the mirror, do you sing how great thou art, or do you see yourself as an ant, a worm? The Bible speaks of a young man named Mephibosheth right here. He's crippled in both feet. He's from a town called Lodabar. That's like being from Bunky, Louisiana, Patricia. Lodabar. You could even say it's a certain educational system, huh? Lodabar. Mom got it, didn't you? Lodabar is a dry place. I'm making reference to lowering the bar. He was dropped when he was a baby. You could say it's not his fault. And yes, it is, it's the condition of all human beings. It is our fault. He was dropped during a time of warfare. He belonged to the wrong family. His daddy was Jonathan, and his daddy was Saul. In ancient ways, he was attached to ugly things. He was crippled and couldn't walk right. But the king, because of a covenant, because of a covenant made before the child was born, said, you know what? I'm going to sit you at my table. And I'm going to make the servants that once served your master serve you, and they will bring you food. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. We're looking to rescue the lost, to bring back the strays, to deliver the sheep from the lion and the bear, to set them at the king's table that they might receive what we've received. And what did we receive? All power, all provision. All power and all provision. Turn with me to First Chronicles 16. I can read to you something out of that. Are you bored yet? Even if you were bored, I would not turn from this subject. It is the subject. Why has the devil splintered and fractured the church so? It's usually over this very issue. In what way do we relate to the presence of God? In which way do we relate to his power here? I'd like the word to guide us. I'd like it to guide us more than efficiency. More than efficacy of some tribunal. I would like the word to guide us even at the expense of our reputations. Did not David dance naked before all of his kingdom? He lost the respect of his own wife, but the favor of the Lord was more important to him than the respect of his own wife. Come on now, are you hearing me? We give up the presence of the Lord for so many things. It's usually fear. It's fear or greed. These are the great motivators of human behavior. It's fear that we won't have. If we don't act in a carnal way, we don't fight to protect, we don't manipulate to grow, we don't, whatever it is, it's usually fear. And when it's not fear, it's greed. I could have this, but I could have that too. I could put my own fire in it and get more. I could build Ahaz's altar. I can go sketch that thing in Damascus and set it right next to the temple of the Lord. And look, all of the people will see the big new altar and they'll come flocking. It's usually fear or greed. What would happen if all we wanted 
was the unadulterated, unrefined, untouched power of God. And we were willing to cut away anything, including ourselves, to get it. Come on, would you like to be associated with a community like that? One that laid down their pride. One that laid down their finances. One that laid down anything that stood between them and the power. See, that's the kind of community of faith the Lord told us to build. He literally said that He would add people to us who are willing to believe for the gospel. He said that. And He has. Look around you. There are men and women in this room that have suffered. They've had machine guns pointed out. They've had death threats given to them. They've been told they're going to lose their jobs if they obey God. And they've smiled and gone anyway. They've sold their houses. They joyfully accepted whatever came their way because they wanted the power of God. That ought to encourage you, friends. You know why? They're ordinary people just like you. Ordinary people that are touched in extraordinary ways. Are you in 1 Chronicles 16? They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. The first thing is the presence of God was made to dwell inside something. He's everywhere and yet He wants a focal point. He wants something to see. Jesus actually said in Matthew 5 that men would see your good deeds and glorify His Father. We've been taught to do things in secret and I say rightfully so. Don't let your right hand know what your left is doing but God will expose what you've done in secret for His glory. Men will see the city on the hill. You cannot hide the presence of God because it's not a common thing. You can hide a single blade of grass in that field because grass is common. It's everywhere. But try to hide a, a giant bar of gold in that field. Men will find it, friends. They will find it. This is why the gospel can take even a passive stance and say, be ready to respond. Be ready to answer anyone who asks you what your hope is. You should be living such a life that catches their attention. You should have power that they don't have. You should have what Moses called that distinguishing factor. You will never get it as a victim waiting for someone to hand you the word. You will never get it talking about the boogeyman somewhere else that has caused you so many problems. I mean, were these people that had the power of God, were they the kind that sat around and whined and complained about all that they don't have and blamed everybody else for it? See, the reason I'm here is for any reason other than I did it to myself. It's someone else's fault somewhere else. Where else? You never get anywhere with God like that. <clears throat> Men of God take responsibility for their own actions. Men of God stand up and say, there's still more of me yet to be cut away. Mm. I'm sorry, Lord. And I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, whoever I hurt. I'm sorry, whoever I offended. Did you know that 1 John 1... 5 through 7 teaches us that if you say you have fellowship with the Father and walk in darkness, you lie. You lie and do not practice the truth. It goes on in the next verse to say if you walk in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. Walking with God causes you to walk rightly with men. If you look around in your life and there is no one that you can walk rightly with, guess who you're not right with? God. There's a vertical relationship between man and God. God and man. And that vertical relationship puts your horizontal relationships in line if you're willing. If you are willing, the cross of Christ will solve your problems. Now these are easy things to preach. But I know firsthand how hard it is to actually do. You know what? You cut away and you 
cut away, and you cut away, and you say, there's nothing left, Lord, there, there's always something left. Humble yourself, go forward, but I've tried. How many times should I try? Which was a Jewish way to say as many as it takes. Come on, as many as it takes. Kind of like David who said, how many giants are there? There's five, well, here's five stones. If there had been six giants, he'd have picked up six stones. If there had been 500 giants, he'd have picked up 500 stones because he had and as many as it takes attitude. This is not a man looking for an excuse. I told you before, Michael Jordan said a winner finds a way. A loser finds an excuse. How many losers are there in the church? There ought not be one. There ought not be one. You know what you do, friends? You don't tolerate it. You look at your brother. You don't condemn him. You don't say, oh, you're a loser and you'll never succeed. That would be the devil. You look at him and you say, you're better than this. Come on, I'll help you. Let us go into the house of God. My foot had almost slipped. But then I entered his presence, his house. Amen. Amen. Come on. Don't you love Asaph? They brought the ark inside a tent. The presence of God was meant to dwell in you. That David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to a few of the Israelites. To each Israelite, man and woman. How many people received gifts on the day the ark went into the tent? Every person. Did it matter whether they were a man or a woman? Did not matter. Maybe this is why Paul can confidently look at a church in Corinth and say, you can all prophesy. Let's try to do it in an orderly way. When the ark goes into the tent, everyone receives gifts. Do you hear me? Everyone. Man, so many theological battles have fought that are really just the devil in disguise to say, I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to. No, friend, no one has to. You get to. The unadulterated fire. The presence of God that moves beyond you. Does something have to be cut away? Yes. Yes. Your pride. Your understanding. Your even desire to communicate in an intelligible way. All kind of things have to be cut away. You have to simply be yielded to the presence of God. Come on now. How many Israelites received a gift? All. All. Every one of them. He appointed some of the Levites to minister. <laughs> this is like Ephesians 4. He appointed some to be prophets, apostles, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. To raise up the rest. He appointed some especially for that purpose. You need that no man teach you when the ark is inside your tent. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, but He loved you enough to say, I'm going to give you AIDS anyway, because I know your propensity to not follow me. Isn't that something? The Lord loves us enough to give us enough power, enough guidance, to never need to be taught. And then He gives us teachers. It's kind of like saying, there should be no poor among you. Deuteronomy 14. And when there's poor among you, don't be tight-fisted towards them. He tells us to do things he knows good and well we won't do, and he raises up people to remind us to do it. It's almost like saying, friend, we can do better than this. Come on, stand up. We were made for more than this. Come on, come on, let's go kill a giant today. Come on, we got the, we got the fire. We have the power. Come on, let's go do something today. Amen. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to make petition, to give thanks, and to praise. 
Look at verse 8. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Was this a private thing? Was it an Israeli thing only? Was it an esoteric Jewish thing? Everything that God was doing was supposed to be assigned to the nations. Hebrews 10 says that the law was only a shadow of the good things to come. Some had taken that to mean that the law was not good. Boy, did they miss out. The law is great. Jesus is just the ultimate. We don't need to diminish the law to make Jesus great. Isaiah said, glorious is the law in my sight. Don't believe me? Get a Bible concordance. It is great. In what way is it great? Well, here's one. We're seeing the presence of God come into a tent. We're seeing every person present receiving a gift. And God said, I did this for the nations. Does that tell you something? Does that foreshadow something? Does that begin to tell you something about a day when the presence of the Lord would show up? It would be signified by fire, maybe even tongues of fire, Don. Maybe even tongues of fire. There'd be a violent rushing wind. Have you ever heard a flamethrower? <laughs> it got everybody's attention. They were all assembled. But this time it wasn't in a tent of Moses. It was not in a Davidic tabernacle. It was not in Solomon's temple. It was in human beings. The altar of their hearts. The power of God was now available. Not in one location. But it was everywhere. At least everywhere he was welcome. And that became the focal point. They became what you looked at and said, what is God like? He's like that. Where is God's fire? It's in them. It's in her. It's in her. It's in him. Who can help us? Who can deliver us? The Lord will do it, and these are his hands and feet. We don't look to the government for a check. We don't look around us for programs to save us. Did that work for communism? Did it work for in any socialist state? No. It's because it's a replacement for the church. We raise up these things when the church is too cowardly to do what God called us to do. Amen. I was authorized to spend a thousand extra dollars above what we already had spent in Kenya. I spent a total of nine thousand. Why? Well, because I didn't have ten. You say, well, Eric, how can you do that? We have a budget. How, how can you do that? Well, praise God, we have understanding leaders that are full of faith. You know how we can do that? Because our vision outpaces our resources and we trust God for the rest. Yeah. How can we do that? Amen. Because I couldn't tell an orphan, no, I don't have the faith to feed you. Yeah. How could we do that? Because I can no longer stick my head in the sand, be a bless me club, and pretend to be doing the work of God. I can't do it. Right. How can we do that? Because I feel like the rich young man. That's why. So, well, that's good for you. You know, they're these special people, Cassidy. They have to do things like that. It's true. You can look around and it seems that there's a way to escape the circumcision of the heart. It looks like there's a way to escape the searing, cutting, narrowing way. Of course, when you do that, you know what else you miss? The fire. You miss the presence. You miss it. And you miss it because you preferred your comfort now. You miss it because you preferred now your good things. Mm. It's funny how this Bible can be twisted Amen. to give us everything now. Yeah. Even our very best life now. Don't you wish every day was a Friday? Mm. Yeah, I don't either. Good for you, Dustin. I don't either. I like work days, friend. I like to work hard. 
God made us that way. You don't get calluses like these from turning pages in Bibles, friends. You do it from working for the Lord. Two long pansy preachers hidden in their office, hid behind their secretary, scheduled their meetings so far out that no one could meet with them because if they met with them, they would find out there's no fire here. Amen. Oh, how can you say those things? Because verse 11 says, look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. I don't need a program. I don't need a denominational backing. I don't even need the support of my closest friends. I just need the Lord's face. And praise God He's given me. Churches that back us. Friends that support us. We sing songs like, though none go with me, I still will follow. But how often is that so untrue? Hey, there's a guy. There's a guy in verse 42 that is worth seeing. Look at 42. He-Man. Anybody heard of him? Do we have a picture of him somewhere in the building? He-Man. And Jeduthun. Does he look Jewish to you? He really doesn't look Jewish, does he? If you had to guess his nationality, I mean, wouldn't you say Norwegian? Did you know He-Man is a Hebrew word? It means faithful. Isn't that interesting? He-Man is a Hebrew word. He-Man and Jedithan were responsible for sounding the trumpets and the cymbals, for the playing of other instruments and sacred song. Let us flip over a few chapters. It seems that He-Man, Jedithan, and Asaph show up together all over the word. This would be 1 Chronicles 25. Before we get too far into He-Man, the presence of God dwells in the tent. It gives gifts to every man. It appoints some men to serve. It makes sure that the nations know about the goodness of God and it becomes the source of strength for every believer. In 1 Chronicles 25, David, together with his commanders of the army, set apart, sanctified some of the sons of Asaph, He-Man and Jephthah, for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. You know why we don't just hire musicians in the church? You know why it is not okay for us to mix that which God gave us with the world? Because our music is prophesying. We are led by the Spirit of the Lord when we play. That's not foolishness, friends. That's not for fame. That's not for glory. Those things must be cut away. Our music is prophesying. These men, He-Man, Asaph, Jedithan, their names mean amazing things. When we start with He-Man, it's faithful. We move to Asaph, it means he who assembles the people. Jedithan, his name means praising. You put them together, we have faithful men who are assembling the people and are praising God, and all three of them are called prophets and musicians. And they show up together all over because David appointed those three men and the sons they would raise up to usher in the presence of God. Why is music such a powerful thing? Because it moves you in one spirit or another and the two do not mix any more than light and darkness, friend. Music moves you. In my house, I have torn the TV off of the wall. I have replaced it with the nations of the world. My radio dial has picked up praise music. Not because there's not other songs that are good to listen to or fun to listen to. But because music moves you. And I want to be moved towards the presence of God. I want to go to sleep singing about Him. I want to wake up with His song in my heart. I don't have time for foolishness because they're dying out there. Yes. And they need 
what God has given us. This was never about us. It's not about petty rivalries. It's not about stupidness. It's about them. If Judah was in another place right now, you all know Judah. Everybody in the room knows Judah. If Judah is in another place, if I didn't make it back from Kenya, there was a thought that I might not make it back from Kenya. Somebody had that thought. And Judah called you. And he said, I'm alone. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm scared. And I don't know where to go. Would you help him? Yes. Yeah. If you called yourself my friend, you'd sell whatever you had to sell. You'd do whatever it took. You'd get on a plane and you'd go. That's right. So what happens when it's not Judah? It's just a child that God says, he's my son. This is my Judah. If you loved me, if you ever called yourself my friend, Christian, you'd sell whatever it took. You'd do whatever it took. You'd get on a plane. And you'd go help him because he's mine. Now, this is not a tool to pull your heartstrings. It's a reality. It's a reality that's going on all around us. We don't have time for tribal warfare. We don't. We are to be about the king's business, the saving of souls. We are to be about the king's business, defending those who cannot defend themselves. That is what we are to be about. You need the power of God to do it. You can never do it on your own. I started the year hoping that we could spend 10% of our budget on missions. We prayed, prophesied, mustered up the faith to dedicate 8, 20, or just shy of 20. Then we spent 50. Yeah. And the year's not over. In fact, we got two more missions trips in the next month or two. In, get through. Mexico, too. Forget about Mexico. You know what, though? If you thought this was the last week you were going to be alive, and I've had that thought an awful lot. It's a healthy thought to have. Would you be proud of the week? What a great question. If this was my last week, would I like to stand before Jesus and give an account for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sabbath, and Sunday? I've had that thought a lot. You know, it, it dramatically changes your It really does. It causes you to get on with God, doesn't it? Anybody here want to get on with God? Yes. Yes. I want to get on with God. With all my heart, I want to get on with God. These men were amazing. He-Man wrote the 88th Psalm. In 1 Kings 4.31, He-Man, the man who is faithful, is compared with Solomon. Solomon is actually told, hey, he's wiser than He-Man. When we look at Asaph, Asaph wrote 12 Psalms in the Bible. He's called a prophet, and he's the chief among those who lead worship. When we look at Jonathan, he's called the prophet. He wrote Psalm 77. And in Psalm 77, he said things like, You are the God who does miracles among the nations. You led us through the Red Sea. You led our path through the Red Sea, though we did not discern your footsteps. These men understood the leading of the Holy Ghost because they had seen the ark going to the temple. They had felt his hand upon them. But they never got what you have been given and so often take for granted. I have a short video for you, and I want to talk to you about it. It's funny, and hopefully it'll lighten the mood for you. And then we're going to get into something incredibly serious. And the masters of the universe. I am Adam, 
Prince of Eternia and defender of the secrets of Castle Grayskull. This is Cringer, my fearless friend. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, By the power of Grayskull! became the mighty battle cat and I became He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe. Did you see that last name? Lewis Schwimmer? <laughs> uh, you think he's from the Norwegian mountain slopes? Turn back on that line. Listen to this. Masters of the universe. God called Adam and, and the followers of God called God Malekolam, king of the universe. But who did God put on the earth and say rule it? What was the name of the man he put on the earth? Adam. This guy's name? Adam. Where'd they get that idea? He was the prince of Eternia. Do you, you think that's a coincidence? Grayskull. Now, this is the one I like most. What in the Bible reminds you of Grayskull? Could that be Calvary, Golgotha? When he lifted up his sword, he had secret powers. His sword was the word of God. In the word of God, he found secret powers. Uh... He came to the conclusion, I have the power, and the first thing that he did was he looked at those who were cringing, his little cat, and it became a battle cat, like the lion of the tribe of Judah. He became the most powerful man in the universe. Where did this Jew get this idea? Because it is thoroughly invested in the scripture. It's thoroughly invested there. Why do little boys crave for it? Why do we long for it? Why did some of you like the movie Shane when you were kids? Others like the movie Rocky? Everybody is looking for some because you like the idea that an ordinary man could be invested with supernatural power and do amazing things. You know what's required? Be obedient to his voice. That's it. That's it. No matter what it says. No matter how hard it is. And yet, that's as hard as could possibly be, isn't it? You ever had to pick up the phone and call somebody and your hand shook? You trembled. You didn't know how you were going to make the words. You prayed they wouldn't answer, but they did. <laughs> I fasted for a time period one time. And I couldn't believe the things that God began to show me. I was like, Lord, you and I both know that's over and done with. It's been a long time. We're friends now. Apparently it wasn't. The Lord will carve away from you more. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus, but he had a little bit of a hard heart. Jesus began to swing that pickaxe at the side of the tomb. Where they placed Jesus' body? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Pima. Put him in a tomb, new tomb, hewned out of a rock. The same thing happens in our hearts. God begins to strike at the core of the matter and strike at the core of the matter. And as long as you will let him, he will carve you away and make room for him. As long as you will let him. The only way to kill the blessing of God in your life is to say no without saying no. You simply justify it in your actions. You simply find something else to do. You push it to the background. This is like choking off it's like choking off life. And then you look around, you don't see what you should see in your life. It's not what it was called to be. And you don't know why. The 
gospel always requires us, always, to do the hard thing. But he provides the power to do it. Do you have power this morning? If you were at this altar and you had nine things right, what one thing might the Lord be speaking to you today? What one thing might he be saying you could do better with this? What action could you take? What could you do? There are situations where it's nothing you can do. It's been done. Your action is to release it to the Lord. But we need to not be so quick to do that. We need to make sure that that's not an excuse for our own apathy. I want power in our lives. Don't you? I want to look around and see those who used to live in their cars and now are building mansions for people. Amen. We'll read you a scripture. It comes from John 14. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Do you know what that says in the Greek? It says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It's not softened. It's not shaken. It says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So let me ask you, do you love him? How do you show that? You obey what he commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you. How long? Let's go to Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is. It's almost like it cannot be intellectually obtained because the kingdom of God is within you. How is the kingdom within us? When His presence sets up residence in us. When His presence sets up residence in us, it gives us power. It gives gifts to every man and woman. It leaves none out. In fact, the word charismata means grace gifts. There are the manifestations of His ark in your life. Do I have to? What kind of spirit would say something like that? 2 Corinthians 5, I won't read it to you, but you know good and well, Paul relates his body to a tent. He said he longs to be clothed with his heavenly dwelling. In 2 Peter 1.13, he said, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of a body. Every single apostle understood that all they were was the tent put on the mountain. All they were was the city set on a hill. And God lit the fire. And it was their job to display it everywhere because God cared about the nations. In John 7.37, Jesus cried out, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. John wrote by this, He meant the Spirit. John 16, verses 12 through 15, He goes so far as to say, I could teach you more. Kind of like today. He could say, I could could teach you more. But look, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you need to know. He was so confident in the baptism and the Holy Spirit that although he could tell them in person, he simply waited for the counselor to come and show them. What an amazing thing is that. They didn't have their degrees from the local seminary yet. But if they got the power of the Spirit, they would have all they needed. Maybe this is why the Scripture says to wait in Jerusalem until you've received power. In Acts 1, 4-8, he said, when... The Holy Spirit comes on you. You will receive power. 
any honest reading of the book of Acts has got to do one of two things. It either has to say, I'll do whatever it takes to carve away enough of me to get that power, no matter what it is, or it has to take the coward's way out and say, that stuff simply doesn't exist anymore. I love the way F.F. Bruce said it. F.F. Bruce, a man who had not experienced all of the manifestations of the Spirit, said the only explanation for this interpretation seems to be that they don't exist in the churches that espouse this doctrine. <laughs> yeah. What an interesting thing. He could find no textual justification for the idea. In fact, you can find many, many places like Corinthians 14, 5, where Paul said, I wish you all spoke in other tongues. I'd rather have you prophesy, but I wish you all spoke in tongues. You can find in Corinthians 14, 18, he said, I speak in tongues more than all of you. Well, we either have to say it doesn't exist anymore or whatever it takes, Lord. I want that, this, that, the other, all that there is because I want the power that the nations might know. I listened to Pilgrim's Progress on a trip here recently. I've read it many times, but I thought it would be neat for my children to listen to it. They loved it. This was the bestseller in all of the English-speaking world for more than 200 years. From 80 to 8 years old, men sat around fires and contemplated its meaning. They debated it. It's only in modern times that our attention spans too short for it. That we, we don't like it. And we don't like it because it's God-awful convicting. And who wants to spend their time doing something like that? Pilgrim set out from the city of destruction. Of course, his name was Graceless at the time. He had such a burden on his back. Where was the burden revealed to him? As he was reading the book, The Evangelist Game. He wanted to get rid of it. But everybody kept giving him advice on how to get rid of it. And it never got rid of it. He journeyed for what seemed like months before he even got to the gate. But we're pretty sure that in two seconds at the altar, a half-hearted prayer got us to the city. You know why we don't read it anymore? Because it shows how far we've fallen. It shows how selfish and quick, how greasy our grace has become. That's why we don't read it anymore. He labored. And friends like Braveheart and Faithful helped him labor. See, the kingdom was never a one-man show. It was never about a singular personality. It was about humble men like Jonathan and Asaph and He-Man who together formed a picture. Even their names formed the picture. Their talents formed the picture that God wanted the nations to see. What's at stake, friends? What will your pride cost you? You know what's a better question? See, that's, that's said like an American. What would your pride cost you, Judah? But if you say it like the Bible says, is what will your pride cost them? Who hasn't heard? Who hasn't received? Who hasn't been fed? How many decades do we waste? I don't want to waste one more day. I want the power. Do you have a picture of a dove? We're closing here. I don't get to teach all I wanted to teach, but you know what? We have elders in the church. They teach faith fundamentals. You should go back and read the one on the Holy Spirit. You should read it. You should read it and tarry. You should read it and travail over it. You should read it whether you speak in other tongues and prophesy or not. I bet none of you have mastered all 12. I'm sorry, all 9 of the gifts that are listed in Corinthians 12. I bet none of you have. I know I haven't. You should wail at the altar. 
You should cry out with all of your heart because they need it. You know when you can't speak a language and you're surrounded by people? There's no more argument about whether or not you need word of wisdom. There's not. There's no more argument about whether or not you need a gift of interpretation or prophecy. You have no idea what they're saying and yet they're looking to you for an answer. And who put you there? God did. It's time to roll up the sides of your tent. Peel away the, the pride. Dig deep and say, Lord, what do you have for them? Will you feel stupid saying it? Of course. Will you be scared? Of course. Your weakness will be turned to strength, though. And amazing things happen. You find that the Lord of glory put in the humble man's mouth. Beautiful, life-saving things. They say that this guy has got nine feathers that determine flight on each wing. Nine. Isn't that interesting? Nine little ailerons that cause him to move around. Of course, Galatians teaches us that there's nine fruits of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and joy. Can you fly with one wing, friends? No. How have people turned this into an either or? My daddy's not with me. Actually, he is. My man, he. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those that yeah. have gone before us. Yeah. If you shot a dove and failed to kill him, we called it winging them. They just couldn't fly right. The best they could do is fall to the earth and walk like any ordinary animal. How many Christians have been winged? We say, oh, I have these. I don't need those. The companion to the nine fruits of the Spirit or the nine gifts of the Spirit. In fact, the nine gifts of the Spirit cause the nine fruits of the Spirit. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Say, so why is this important? Because God put you on a hill for the whole world to see. He put His tabernacle inside of you. His ark, His presence inside of you. That you might be His war club. That you might be that which rescues the nations and you cannot do it in your own strength. You don't have the ability. Your wealth, your reasoning, your physical prowess and business acumen will not get it done. You don't have enough love in you to do it. Enough peace in you to do it. It must be something that is supernaturally endowed. This bird has nine feathers on each wing because a Christian life is dependent. Your flight, your walk with Him, your journey to the celestial city is dependent upon the presence of all of these things. No one gave you the right to exclude any of them, no matter what your church size is. The standard line is, well, when you get to a certain size, brother, you just can't allow this to operate. I don't want to be that big. And I mean that in every sense of the word. All I want is to be weak, that he might be strong. Amen. That's all I want. Friends, he's good at doing it. He is good at doing it. When this is said and done, something's going to happen. It comes from Revelation 21. Please turn there. We will close with this scripture. Forgive me for that. 
Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That begins in you right now. The kingdom is in you. The Ark of the Covenant is in you. The other word for the Ark of the Covenant is Ark of the Testimony. And it is you. Are you proclaiming the full message with your life? Or only the part that pleases you. Only the part you can do without His help. If you accomplished everything on your to-do list this last week, your list was not big enough. You wrote it with your capabilities in mind. And I'm saying that the church of the living God has got to aspire to more. We have to have vision that outpaces our current resources. We have to. Their lives depend upon it. We need to stop asking things like how much do I have and start asking what would it take. We have to. What you have been given is for the glory of the nations. It is not your personal play toy. It's not. The Lord is infinitely merciful. God knows He has been with me. There are people in this room like my mother that have been with me since the very first time I soiled the diaper. She put up with a lot with me. A lot. But the glory of God is that she can watch me go from where I was to where I am and still see that I've got further to go. Do not stop along the way. There is no place that you cross your arms and say, I'm good enough now. You know when we get to cross our arms and say it's good enough now? When the dwelling of God is with every man. Every tear has been wiped away. All of the work is done. When it's a Sabbath that the whole world enjoys for a thousand years. That's what. Not now. We cannot sit on our salvation while they go to hell. Amen. Evangelism. Filling with the Holy Ghost. Power. These are the things that should define the church. We can teach the doctrine of the apostles, but what would it be good for if it's not for raising up those things? Church, you have my complete permission to minister in every area God would put before you. Every single one. You're not held back in any area. There's nobody in here that I'm saying, not you. You're not ready. You're ready to do what God has put before you. Do not sit when you should run. Do not stand back and debate and wait for someone's approval when God has given you His Spirit. And if you don't have His Spirit, run to get it. Run. Do whatever it takes. As much sacrifice, as much praise, as much time. Because it's the hope of the world. You hearing me? Yes. How do you operate a church like that if everybody's trying to preach? If everybody's trying to prophesy? Because Moses said, I wish that all God's people were prophets. How do you operate a church like that? You stand back and you watch God's spirit. And you admire your friends who do amazing things. And you glory in the success God is giving them. Say, but what if there's error? God's big enough to handle the error. He's big enough to handle it. Why are we so scared? Spend a little time baptized in criticism and you'll forget about error. <laughs> you will. 
you find out that there's not a single direction you can move or somebody's not going to criticize you. You just start worrying about his favor. Amen. And that'll be enough for you. Amen. I've come to that place in my life. This was the last week of my life. I would not care what people were or thought I was a good person. I would only care what he thought. That's where we're at. I hope that's where you're at. Stand to your feet.